Please keep that passage open before you, and we're going to be working our way through it. As I mentioned, we started a short three-week study in, in the book of Habakkuk last week, and we considered the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And the title of the message last week was, The Sovereign God Confronted. And we saw that Habakkuk came to, to God with, with some questions uh, and some doubts about the way uh, in which God was dealing with his people in Judah. We saw last time that things were not well in Judah. Uh, the majority of the people had rejected God. Uh, the righteous few, the remnant, were being persecuted by the rest. Uh, there was violence and strife all around. And Habakkuk says even the law of God, which is meant to restrain people, seemed powerless to restrain the evil which abounded. And so we saw last week that Habakkuk brought his first complaint to God about the present situation that he found himself in. Why did God seem so silent? Why was God apparently absent from the scene of Judean history? And so Habakkuk complained about the present, and we saw that God then responded about the future. God responded to Habakkuk's complaint and told him, Open your eyes, look and see and, and consider my ways, and, and you will be utterly amazed. God then went on to pronounce judgment on the people of Judah, the wickedness of the people in Judah. And he said that the judgment would come at the hands of the Babylonians, whom God was raising up for this very purpose of bringing judgment upon his people for their sins. And God made it very clear that he was sovereign, that he was ruling over the affairs of even the greatest of all world powers, the Babylonians. He was raising them up in order to achieve his purpose, purposes which unfortunately we saw last week for Judah involved their judgment for having rejected God. Now you can imagine that Habakkuk was not happy with the response that he got from God to his first complaint. He had presented this complaint to God about the present, and God had responded about the future with this word of judgment. And so we now continue this intimate dialogue between God and Habakkuk in verse 12. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that Habakkuk complains about the future. In verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 1, and we might be a bit quick here, perhaps, to judge Habakkuk at this point, because I think we can all identify with something of what Habakkuk was feeling. You know those times when you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've asked the Lord about something for a long time, when finally the Lord answers, and we say, Lord, but that's not really the way I was hoping you would answer. Actually, what I was really wanting is for you to answer me like this. Have you ever had that experience perhaps when someone comes to your door at home or they come to your car outside the shopping center and they ask you for money because they're desperately hungry and they want to buy food? And so you say to them, look, you're not going to give them the 20 rand that they want, but you'll go inside and you'll make them a sandwich or you'll run into the, uh, the shop and you'll quickly buy them a, a loaf of bread and, and you come out and you give them the bread for their hunger and you can see the expression of disappointment on their face. And then they say, well, actually, I still need the 20 rand because I need to buy some airtime. You see, what was being asked for was not really what they wanted. They were disguising what they wanted under the cloak of something else. And isn't that so often the case that we have when we come to God in prayer? 
We come to God and we say, Lord, I want to pray these things according to your will. I, I promise that if you give me these things that I'm asking for, I'm going to use them for your glory. And yet God knows our hearts. He knows the motives of our hearts. And so when God answers, uh, he know, in a way sorry, which he knows, which will result ultimately in his glory and our good, Sometimes we are upset and we're disappointed because we never actually got what we wanted. And I think this is the situation with Habakkuk. We saw last time that Habakkuk's prayer was motivated by a desire to, to see God glorified in the people of Judah. But he never considered that God is also glorified when he brings about righteous judgment on a people who have rejected him. God is holy. And his glory does not always come via our blessing. And so while Habakkuk did certainly have a desire for God's glory, he was not happy with God's answer. He wanted things to work out differently. He wanted God to do something different. And so he now complains to God for a second time. And again, I think we mustn't be too hard on Habakkuk. It seems in verse 12 that Habakkuk has started to grasp who God is. But he hasn't yet come to terms with the way in which God is choosing to act. Just listening to God's response in the previous verses that we looked at last time has reminded Habakkuk of the sovereign and the holy God who he is now approaching in prayer. God's response has, has reminded Habakkuk that he is holy and we are not. He is in heaven and we are on earth. And as God pronounces his judgment on Judah at the hand of the Babylonians, Habakkuk has realized that God is perfectly justified in punishing his people for their ongoing sin and rebellion against, against him. But we do see a change in Habakkuk's attitude from verse 2 that we looked at last week to verse 12 today. In verse 2 last time, we saw him kind of immediately launching into a complaint against God. Look back at verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? But now in verse 12, we have a much more reserved and reverent attitude to God. Verse 12 says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? You'll see in your Bibles that Lord is all caps. It's the covenant name, Yahweh. And so Habakkuk here is, is, in a sense, appealing to God to remember that we are your covenant people. You've chosen us to be your own. And then he says, are you not from everlasting, Lord? Are you not eternal? Lord, don't you know that you are the beginning and the end? And he says, my God, there. Lord, my God, the next line, my Holy One. Habakkuk is reminding God here of the personal nature of his relationship, not only with his people generally, but with Habakkuk individually. You are my God. And so in calling God the Holy One, he's appealing to the character of God here as the one who is totally other, who's perfect in righteousness, the one true God who's not like all the idols that the pagans worship. Yahweh is altogether holy. And so Habakkuk starts his second complaint, and he brings to mind the character of God, that Yahweh is the eternal, covenant-keeping, holy, personal God of Israel. All of that is there in verse 12. And he's the God who will not die. 
Now, let me just say something about that phrase, because you might see something different in your Bibles. That phrase, you will not die. Some translations say, you will not die. So the new NIV, the Christian Standard Bible that we read, says, you will not die. But you may have an older translation, the 84 NIV or the ESV, and they say, we will not die. And this is one of those cases where the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible says, we will not die. But more ancient manuscripts have been found which say, you will not die. And according to the translators, this is the preferred, um, more direct reading. It's the more difficult reading that can explain the rise of an easier reading, we will not die, because the Hebrew scribes tried so hard to disassociate the concept of death from Yahweh that they changed in the copying um, the words, we will not, uh, you will not die, to we will not die. But there's also something that I want you to see in verse 12, and it's called a chiasm. It's, don't worry about that. It's a, it's a cross structure in the Hebrew verse 12. He starts by saying, are you not from eternity, Lord my God, and then my holy one, you will not die. So picture, are you not from eternity, Lord my God, cross over my holy one, parallels to Lord my God, are you not from eternity, you will not die. And so, although it's not a hill to die on, um, I think we should go with the reading here, you will not die, as the accurate translation. He is really appealing here to the character of this eternal God as the arbitrator now to whom he brings his second complaint. But he goes on in the second half of verse 12 to recognize this eternal, immortal, holy God as the sovereign judge. Look at verse 12b, Lord You appointed them, that is the Babylonians, to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. And this, you can be sure, was a very hard pill for any Jew to swallow. While it was right and it was proper for God to be the judge of his people, Habakkuk is not happy with the means that God has chosen to judge his people. And so he raises his next complaint against God, the heart of which is found in verse 13. Your eyes, he's speaking to God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot even tolerate wrongdoing. So why, Lord, do you tolerate those then who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked, speaking of the Babylonians, swallows up one who is more righteous than himself, speaking of the people of Judah? Effectively, Habakkuk saying, Lord, I know that we are bad, but they are badder. You cannot tolerate our wrongdoing. How on earth can you tolerate the treacherous? And so in verse 14 to 17, Habakkuk wants to make sure that the Lord just knows how bad they are. You know, just to make sure that he hasn't perhaps missed some of the things that he knows about them. How can God use this treacherous nation Uh, He just wants to clarify that God has got all the facts, that God knows who he's dealing with. And so verse 14 is a very difficult verse because Habakkuk here implies that God has abandoned uh, his people like fish in the sea who have no ruler. And he shows how deep-seated our illusions about ourselves can, can be. You see, God, we know, was the king over Israel. 
But Israel had rejected him. They wanted an earthly king. We've just finished the book of 1 Samuel. They wanted an earthly king just like the nations around them. And that was 500 years ago. And we are now at the end of 500 years of human kings who have left the nation in utter ruin. To the point where the people as a whole have rejected God as their king altogether. They were like fish without a ruler. About to be hooked up and caught in the dragnet of this proud and idolatrous nation called the Babylonians. But this was not because God had abandoned them, but because they had rejected him as their Lord. And so although Habakkuk partially understands that that God's judgment is necessary, he now complains about the means that God will use. And Habakkuk here is is really suffering from an attitude of self-righteousness. And that's a problem that was all too familiar in the people of Israel. They believed that they were somehow special as the people of God because, that, because they were somehow better than the nations around them. They never really understood what made them special. They forgot what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to, to be His people, His treasured possession. That part they knew well. They liked that part. But the next verse goes on, Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the covenant he swore to your forefathers. In other words, the the specialness of the people of God had nothing to do with themselves. It, It was all God's grace. God's election of his people has always contained this twofold tension of us being totally unworthy on the one hand and yet chosen to be holy and special and set apart unto God. This tension between God's grace and our responsibility. And the nation of Judah had forgotten this. They had trampled the grace and the the patience of God underfoot. They did not see their true spiritual state as actually far worse than the Babylonians. Now, why would I say that? Well, they were in a far worse situation because of all the light and all the grace that they had received, which they had rejected. The Babylonians were barbarians. They were were treacherous. Yes, they were evil, wicked. But they had not received the light and the grace that Israel had, who were now rejecting God over them. And we must not make the mistake to think that God's wrath against a rebellious people, no longer applies to us in the New Testament era. This caricature of God, that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath, and he has a good example of it, but the New Testament God is a God of love, that is absolute nonsense. There is only one God, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament, in Hebrews 10, says this, For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone, now he goes to the Old Testament, anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. How much worse... Punishment do you think one will deserve who 
with all the light, with all the grace that we've received, tramples the Son of God underfoot, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus confirmed in Luke 12, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, as a steward, even more will be expected. So this was a lesson that Habakkuk and the people of Judah needed to learn, and it's one that we need to learn today. What are you doing with all the light and all the blessing and all the grace that you have received as Christians at the hand of God? All the blessings that you've received of being part of of Honey Ridge Baptist Church, perhaps for for many, many years. You see, our lives, unlike the, the popular kind of prosperity gospel, is not meant to be like a dam for God's blessings that we just kind of store up for ourselves. Now, our lives are, are meant to be a river which conveys the grace and the blessing of God to others. And so when we are part of a church where that is being lived out, where I see that all the grace coming to me is meant to flow to you, and you see all the grace that's coming to you is meant to flow to others, we will have so much blessing in this church that it will flow out to those in the community. And that was God's purpose right from the beginning with Israel. He wanted them to be a blessing to the nations of the world. But they had not learned that lesson. And so God had reached the place now where he would withdraw his blessing. They would lose their king. They would lose their land. They would lose their freedom because the time of exile in Babylon had arrived. And so this really is the lowest point in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, He started off being confused and and doubting God because God was absent or seemed to be absent in the affairs of Judah. And now he is cast down in despair because God has revealed to him the plans of judgment for the imminent future. But I want you to see that even here is God's grace to us. That sometimes God needs to drive us to a low point of utter despair in our lives where all our sin and all the consequences of our sin are laid bare before the holiness of God in order for God to cause us to lift our eyes towards Him in repentance. Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees, that I might learn your ways. And so it's at this low point for Habakkuk that we have a glimmer of hope shining through in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Habakkuk says, After his lady's complaint before God, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Now, John Calvin is really helpful here as he explains this idea of the watchtower. He says, There is no remedy when such trials as those mentioned by the prophet in the first chapter meet us, except that we learn to raise our minds above the world. For if we struggle with Satan according to our own view of things, 
Listen to this. He will a hundred times overwhelm us, and he will never be a- and we will never be able to resist him. But we are shown a right way of fighting him. When our minds are agitated with unbelief, when doubts over God's providence creep in, when things are so confused in this world as to involve us in darkness so that no light appears, we must bid farewell to our human reason. As long as we judge our trials according to our own reason and perceptions, we walk on the earth. And while we do so, many clouds will arise and Satan will scatter ashes in our eyes to darken our judgment until it happens that we lie down altogether confused. It is thus wholly necessary that we should tread our own reason underfoot and draw near to God himself. Now, How do we draw near to God as Habakkuk did here in chapter 2 verse 1? What does that look like practically for us as Christians? Calvin goes on to explain how we draw near to God. He says we do that by following after or waiting upon the word of the Lord. For when we creep on the earth, we find that our flesh draws us always downward. But let the word of God become our ladder, our wings, and however difficult the ascent may be, we shall yet be able to climb upward provided God's word is allowed to have its authority in our life. For it is by God's word that we are raised up to this tower, that is to the safeguard of hope, where we may remain safe and secure while looking down from this heavenly perspective on those things which disturb us and darken our senses as long as we remained on the earth. End quote. And so we've reached what is the the real low point in Habakkuk's confusion and bewilderment and doubts before God, but we also see that we've reached one of the high points in the book uh, as Habakkuk stands on the watchtower, looking to to God now for the answers. Habakkuk is, is lifting his eyes from the earth and he's looking to God to respond. Do you have this perspective on whatever it is that you're going through? Are you being daily raised up by the word of God to gain a a heavenly perspective on your circumstances? Or are you groping around in the dust and the ashes of the earth looking for answers in all the wrong places? So let's just recap the journey that we've taken with Habakkuk so far. We've seen that he started off complaining about the present, and God responds in a surprising way, pointing Habakkuk to the future. Habakkuk is partially enlightened about the sovereignty of God here and his plans for the future, but then he complains about the future. And so in the final place this morning, we see that God answers about eternity in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 2. And this really is the climax to this very short book of Habakkuk because God points Habakkuk forward here to his even greater plan for all eternity. He points here to his salvation plan of eternity in verse 4 where he says the just shall live by faith or the righteous one will live by his faith. And the word live in verse 4, we'll come back to verse 2 and 3 in a moment, but the word live The righteous or the just shall live by faith is not the word to to live out our daily lives. It's the word here which is in reality the opposite of death. 
It's the opposite of death. It means to live in the sense of salvation, to, to have eternal life, to never die. And so God reveals that the just or the righteous will live, will truly live, will eternally live by faith. Not because you are a Hebrew, not because you grew up in a Christian home, not because you're a member of Honey Ridge, not because of anything in you, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a real significance here in the words of God to Habakkuk. We need to remember the timing of this message. God has finally reached the end of his patience with his people Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, the, the ten tribes, they'd been conquered a, a hundred years earlier by the Assyrians, and Judah did not learn the lesson they needed to learn. And so now God's going to bring about the same curses promised to Moses for a people who would continue to disobey and reject God's lordship over them. And so it seems from a human perspective that this is the end of the road. This is the end of the nation of Israel and the people of God. But we must never forget that that old covenant which God gave to Moses, under which Israel had failed so miserably, it was a temporary covenant. It was never intended to bring about true salvation and eternal life. It was there to point the people to Jesus Christ. The promises which God gave to Abraham were not fulfilled under the old covenant, but were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so as Habakkuk stands on his watchtower, lifting his eyes towards God and waiting for, in, in expectation for an answer, God responds to him and says in verse 3, For the vision, this vision of judgment, is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and it won't be late. Look, his ego is inflated. God's acknowledging here Babylon is a wicked nation. He is without integrity. But, says God, the righteous one will live by his faith. God says to Habakkuk, despite the imminent judgment, I want you to lift your eyes even further. Habakkuk, I want you to look beyond the destruction of the nation of, of Judah at the hands of the Babylonian. Come with me, Habakkuk. Look, look further into the future. Be amazed. The just shall live by faith. Now there's great significance here to be found in verse 2. Look at how the Lord answered him. He said in verse 2, Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets, so one may easily read it. You see, up to now, in the history of the Old Testament, in the history of redemption, God had laid down the terms of his covenant with his people on two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. But the people of God had failed miserably to keep the requirements of God's law. And so it's at this final low point of utter failure and, and miserable chaos in the people of God that God comes to Habakkuk and he says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this specific vision on stone. Not on a scroll, not on parchment, not on the back of a handkerchief. I want you to write it on stone. In other words, this is my new covenant with you. And here it is. The just shall live by faith. Now there were two other prophets prophesying around the same time as Habakkuk 
uh, was, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And what is the most amazing theme that comes out of Jeremiah and Ezekiel's prophecies is the same theme of the new covenant. Let me just read Jeremiah 31 to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's no wonder then that this verse from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 forms the heart of the Christian gospel in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament and it forms the central theme of Paul's letter to the Romans as we looked at last year. Romans 1 verse 16. What did Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, and here he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. So God answers Habakkuk here in a way which he could have never anticipated and in a way which he could never have fully understood at this point. But we can look back and see that what God was saying to Habakkuk is this. Habakkuk, look to me. Look to me and I will save you. Look to me by faith. Put your trust in me, Habakkuk. I will deliver you. You will have eternal life. We'll see next time that God's response to Habakkuk resulted in a changed man. Maybe this was the day of his conversion. We can never really know. But what you will see is that after God had responded to Habakkuk this second time, we find that Habakkuk has no more complaints to bring to God. Instead, what happens is he breaks out in chapter 3 into one of the most amazing hymns of praise in all of Scripture. As Habakkuk stood in his watchtower and lifted his eyes to God, he was a changed man. God revealed himself. God revealed his sovereignty. God revealed his love and his mercy and the good news, the gospel of salvation in a way which Habakkuk could never, ever have expected. God pointed Habakkuk, and he's pointing all of us afresh today, to the same Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. The just will live by faith in Him and in Him alone. So as we conclude today, I want to just draw a few points of application from our journey with Habakkuk so far. Um, Chapter 1 and chapter 2, you might be experiencing some very tough times in your life at present. We all are going through the effects of the COVID pandemic. Uh, It's associated recession There are massive unemployment problems in our church and in in our city and in our country. We looked at this last week. We see so much corruption and evil in society, not to mention the, the trouble and the strife in our marriages and families and personal lives. Every one of us is struggling to some degree or another with with sin, and we know those who are struggling with the devastating effects of sin in their lives. 
and in the world around us. Well, our journey with Habakkuk so far, I think, gives us some wonderful lessons to just take home with us today as we go into the week ahead. Number one, see. Uh, Graham, I think you might need to help us see. Um, Thanks. If you can just run through those as I get there, Graham. Uh, See God's sovereignty in the present. We asked you to do that last week. Thank you for those uh, who did send in to me this past week your reflections on on this past year and how you've been able to look and see and are amazed at what God has been doing. And I would really encourage you to continue to send those through. Uh, What a great encouragement they've been to me, and we want to share those with the wider church body. But Habakkuk brought his concerns to God, and so can you. There's not one of us who does not experience these seasons of doubt and, and fear. But God wants us to know that he is sovereign over the present over all the events in our lives. And so even if you are going through a season, perhaps of the heavy hand of God's discipline in your life, learn from Habakkuk that this is the evidence of God's grace to you. He has not left you alone. God's uncomfortable grace in these moments is drawing you back to himself. Times like this, Habakkuk teaches us to focus on the character of God. To look and consider and be amazed that our God is perfectly good. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy and loving. And He is at work in our lives, in the mess of all that's going on around us, in ways that we will not always understand or agree with, but which will ultimately be revealed as perfect. What a wonderful blessing to see the sovereignty of God in the present. Then secondly, is to look to God's sustaining for the future. That's this message that God was was giving to Habakkuk here, the the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of, of the perseverance of the saints. Those who belong to the Lord will be kept safe to the end. Habakkuk was facing this world of evil and despair, and he found comfort knowing that whatever was going to happen in the future was under God's control, and God would sustain him. God will not allow anything to happen in your life and mine which is not there to draw us closer to himself, up to and including death, when he will draw us immediately into his very presence. So like Calvin says, you and I need to climb the ladder of God's word daily so that we can station ourselves on the watchtower and look to God for his sustaining grace. In the midst of our trials, we are to lift our eyes to him who has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And then finally, be amazed at God's salvation for eternity. When last have you been so confronted by the glory and the grace and the love of God in your life that you rejoiced in him and worshipped him despite your circumstances? You see, so many Christians' relationship with the Lord is a reflection of their physical circumstances. So when things are going well, then the relationship with the Lord goes well. And when times are tough, then people are spiritually depressed. But I want you to notice that God never took away the imminent judgment which was coming on the nation of Judah. It came. God says, watch for it. It will come. 
He never promised Habakkuk a life of fruitfulness and plenty after the judgment. He didn't say, Habakkuk, endure the judgment and then things will go well with you. There was no hope on an earthly level on the horizon for Habakkuk. But what did God do? He pointed Habakkuk to the ultimate salvation which God brings through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Habakkuk needed to focus. And when Habakkuk saw God in that right perspective, when he saw himself and his circumstances in their proper place, the result is chapter 3, which we'll get to next week. But let me just whet your appetite. Chapter 3 and verse 17. This is the response of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the produce of the olive tree fails, and the fields yield no food. There's a description of, of a recession in the olden day times. Though the flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Lift your eyes out of the muck, out of the mire which Satan is, is throwing at you to keep your eyes off Jesus. Cast yourself upon the word of God. Climb the ladder of its promises and its wisdom. Stand in the watchtower of hope in the sovereignty of God and look to him for his daily sustaining care and his ultimate salvation. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we... We just want to marvel again this morning at the contemporary nature of your word. How a portion of scripture that was written two and a half thousand years ago in such a dramatically different context speaks so directly to what's going on in our hearts as individuals, in our homes, and as a church in this country at this time. And so, Lord, we want to come and ask that you would cause us to do these things that we have seen Habakkuk do today, to climb the watchtower through the Word of God having its way in our life on a daily basis, and that we would look to you and you alone to be our hope and our salvation. Lord, won't you meet with each person here today who is wrestling with, with what we are dealing with from this passage in their own way, in their own homes, in their own circumstances, in their own financial predicaments due to lockdown, Lord, help us all at this time to see that you are sovereign, to know that you are good and perfect. You have called us as your chosen people. You've set us apart as holy. And we are not called to just live by faith in the sense of becoming Christians, but each day of our lives is to be continued to be walked in that way of, of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. So help us, we pray. We can't do this by ourselves and, and may you lift us and give us this hope of eternity in our circumstances. For we pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.